This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. No sale. It is no sale. All of you cats can too. While I make all the loot. All right, Taylor, so let's talk a little bit of retail. No sale, that seemed to be the message we got when the retail sales numbers uh, came out this morning. Let's dig into that as well as some specific numbers that we heard from Macy's to help us make sense of it all. Poonam Goyle is here. She's senior U.S. retail analyst joining us on the phone from New Jersey. So let's start with those retail sales numbers unexpectedly declining for the second time in three months. These are the April numbers. Poonam, what do you see as you dug in? You know, um, we look at the numbers more on a year-over-year basis because that's what correlates better with the way retailers report sales. And April year-over-year was still up. So um, I'm not particularly, you know, as discouraged by the numbers as some may be. Hmm. I think the numbers overall were okay. In fact, um, you know, we saw Macy's reports this morning, and they said April actually did much better. The Easter pickup helped. So I think, um, I think you know, the concern really heading into the future is what tariffs do to sales. And if the fourth tranche of tariffs actually goes into effect, that'll probably have a more pronounced effect on retailers, especially apparel retailers. Well, Poonam, this is why we have you here, because you bring a lot of perspective. The headline, of course, that we were getting was a lot of negativity about how the tariffs had really impacted the bottom line. And there were some concerns about the forward guidance. So what was your key takeaway? We did hear from the CEO on the earnings call about some concerns over tariffs. Uh, did it rightfully so sort of hit the bottom line this time? So tariffs haven't, I mean, as, you know, we're talking Macy's here, and tariffs didn't hit the bottom line at all in the first quarter. Um, they said in 2018, the 10% that was initiated on the tariffs didn't affect them at all. When the 10% moved to 25% and it, um, you know, went to an additional $200 billion in goods, that affects their furniture business. And um, that hasn't yet also hit them really too much. So there was really no impact to 1Q. Going forward, the furniture piece will be affected with the 10% moving to 25%. Um, but they think they can navigate through that pretty well where it shouldn't really materially affect their guidance. The caveat here is the fourth tranche that President Trump is talking about, which is taxing everything that comes in from China. That would include apparel. And if that's the case, that's where I think a lot of the apparel retailers, including Macy's, would be materially impacted. And that would send their guidance down if that did happen. Well, and that seemed to be, Poonam, what investors were reacting to. You know, I'm looking at a chart of of what happened today. The stock was up and then it was down and then it was up Mm -hmm. and it's down. It feels like people are trying to figure out how worried uh, they should be. So I guess my question to you, and maybe this requires you to get inside the heads of both President Trump and President Mm -hmm. Xi, difficult. uh, But what would you say? How worried should people be here for Macy specifically? Yeah, you know, our initial thoughts when there was um, debate about everything being taxed was that it really doesn't make sense to tax everything because 
originally the president's perspective was that we want to bring business back to the U.S. We want to bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And that makes sense maybe for, you know, steel and other things. But for apparel, the U.S., number one, doesn't have the infrastructure, nor does it have the talent to support apparel manufacturing. We don't have stitchers. We don't have fabricators. We just don't have that talent pool here. So eventually, if that does happen, it would actually, we think, take a tax on the U.S. consumer. One thing I wanted to to ask you about, I was reading some of your research earlier about luxury specifically, and if I'm reading this right, you know, luxury stores continuing to slide, traffic falling 10% in the week uh, ending May 11th. What, what do you make of that? You know, the traffic numbers have been volatile for a long time. They're up and down high single digits. Um, traffic is down. People are shopping more online. So as far as, you know, down 10%, down 12%, down 8%, we, we've been seeing those numbers for quite some time. As we take a look at import costs, one thing I wanted to get your gauge on is within the consumer staples sector, like a Kimberly Clark, a Procter & Gamble, those companies are successfully able to pass on the higher cost to the consumer. Are the retailers able to do that as well when it comes to perhaps more of the discretionary items if we do see these tariffs and they do want to pass on those costs to the customer? So, uh, you know, you know that becomes tricky because it is a discretionary purchase. So you are able to pull back your spend more easily. If you were looking to buy, you know, four dresses for a vacation, now you'll probably buy two or maybe one. Right. So, so at the end of the day, because it's discretionary, retailers could see a top line impact from a pullback in purchases or even trade down. You know, you're used to buying these higher end brands. Maybe you go from that to a private label. So, Poonam, what's the name you're next most interested to hear from in terms of giving us a sense of where the consumer is and where retailers are broadly? Yeah, I'm looking to hear from what Cole says. Cole says mm. a bigger private label business than Macy's does. So I'm looking to see what they have to say about tariffs and what their thoughts are. Um, based on Macy's results, you know, I think most retailers, or at least should have, been able to navigate the Easter shift a little better as they did. So we're looking for an OK 1Q, but really their thoughts on tariffs going forward. Cole sets a report on May 21st, according to my Bloomberg screen here. Poonam sure. Goyle, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone from New Jersey. And I will echo my uh, partner, Carol Masser, here. I love earnings just because they, you know, give us such a window into where these various macro factors are actually playing into the literal bottom line. Into the fundamentals, which I think is a much better gauge uh, when you take a look at where we are. I think sentiment tends to run on the headlines. Yes. the pure margins, and that's really what is going to be driving the market, is is all about earnings. So definitely, uh, I like earnings. Season. Yeah, good stuff. All right. Yeah, it's right up your alley because you can chart it, right? And and actually, charts, charts. work well on, on radio they in do. some ways. That's that. what Dave Wilson says. All right, so we were talking, Taylor, a little bit earlier about the broader retail business, retail sales, Macy's, etc. Take a little bit of a different uh, tack now. Marissa Tarleton is the CEO of Retail Me Not, based down in Austin, Texas, here with Taylor and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Marissa, great to have you here with us. Thanks for having me. Welcome to New York, uh, or welcome back to New York, I should say. So what's going on? When it comes to prescription drugs, I want to ask you a little bit later about the broader retail environment, but this is a new effort, uh, I believe. Why now? 
Yeah, great question. Retail Me Not stands for making everyday life more affordable. And we've done that um, in retail and in food and dining for years. And um, most recently, we've entered into the prescription space. I don't know if you know this, but the cost of your prescription price varies depending on the pharmacy you go to. And yeah. in fact, up to 80% variation in the price of your prescription. And when you think about over 60% of Americans being on some form of a regular a prescription drug and the fact that it costs them over a thousand dollars a year and many americans have to actually make the choice do i buy groceries or do i go fill my prescription as a retail me not ceo uh, we felt like it was an important place to start to involve ourselves on the subject of price and transparency and affordable living well, and it's coming at a really interesting time, especially as healthcare is really up for debate in Washington. And it seems like uh, within the healthcare sector in general, a lot of the big swings that we see within the equity markets are really coming from the headlines that are coming out from Washington. How do you ignore that and just stick to the day to day? It's funny. I mean, we're watching it closely, of course, but we're not actively involved. We stand for the consumer, and we believe that if we can socialize and add more transparency to the fact that pricing varies, then we we help the consumer win by finding the best deal. So if you think of what we do, Rx Saver by Retail Me Not is a marketplace that basically connects consumers to thousands of different pricing options near me at any retailer. And so we're watching it. We believe in the the movement towards transparency that many people are talking about. And it's just about making sure that consumers know they do have a choice. Right. They don't have to stick with just their insurance. They don't have to stick with just the pharmacy that to which that, where the drug was prescribed. They have choice. They have options. And that's what we're standing for. And so how much pushback do you encounter setting the political and the regulatory framework aside from people who have a vested interest in higher prices, whether it's the insurance companies or maybe even more pointedly, the drug companies? You know, none. That's the sort of the point. If I, if you come back to what Retail Me Not stands for, it's about providing the best price and the best deal for the consumer. Yeah. And the, the the nature of us being a marketplace means we have thousands of prices. So we don't partner with just one. We partner with many. And right. by that nature, there's no there's no formal lobbying that can come into play there. Right. We're providing options. Um, and that's the, the nature of what our business is. And so there's been no pressure. Jason mentioned this at the beginning about retail sales in general, and today looked like a little bit of a weaker number. And I was reading a really cool statistic that even though you're in a physical store, customers are still using their mobile phones a lot more. How are you looking at the consumer at the physical store, but also knowing that we're going online? How is it the sentiment been recently? Yeah, it's a great question. And we were, uh, I was just looking at some of the Macy's earnings this morning and a lot of their growth is coming from mobile specifically. And I think what Macy's and many retailers, including pharmacies are doing better is capturing the fact that a consumer's on their mobile device outside or in the store. So what, what options do retailers have to try to engage them and get them to understand what, what they can do while they're in the store or potentially drive traffic to, to another store while they're shopping. So I, I really believe that mobile has transformed um, the way average advertisers need to access consumers and the way consumers shop. It's blurred the lines of the channels. There's no online versus in-store anymore. The mobile is sort of the the Uber device that that transcends both. And the retailers that are winning are the ones that get that. And you talked earlier about, you know, consumers in unfortunate situations having to choose between, you know, groceries and, and medication. Broadly speaking, how's the consumer feeling right now? You have such an interesting window and so much data that you collect about what they're spending, how much they're 
uh, spending. What's your gut check on that? I mean, the sentiment of consumers and the frustration levels of the price of their prescription is incredibly high. So back to the data point, the average consumer that's on recurring medication is spending over $1,100 a year. And eight out of 10 consumers are saying it is too much. They cannot afford it. They shouldn't have to make these choices. So we're sort of at the brink of, I think, a significant amount of consumer backlash and an urgency for this transparency conversation that, that I'm happy that Retail Me Not and RX Saver are, are helping to provide. Well, it's a really cool update. And thank you for joining us and telling us all about it. Melissa, Marissa Tarleton, excuse me, Chief Executive Officer of Retail Me Not, based down in Austin. She gave me some very, very good advice around tacos as well. So it's really a full service interview. It, it, I believe. This has yeah. been full service. Yeah, We've gone exactly. from tacos to prescription <laughs> drugs. So thank you for that, Jason. Never hurts to uh, bring in a segment with Huey Lewis and the news. I feel like Joel Weber is sort of the Huey Lewis of the newsroom in a good way. You know, just convening everyone, you know, rocking and rolling all the time. I think this is payback for what I told Paul (laughs) yesterday. I'll I'll take it. I'll take it. There you go. All right. Uh, Overseeing the magazine. And I got to tell you, I love this week's cover story. We got a chance to catch up with the author earlier for our weekend show. And she joins us again, Ellen Hewitt. She looks after startups for us. She's joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio uh, in San Francisco. So, Joel, let me turn to you first. Set this up for us because this is a great cover story. So the the bigger context, I think, is one that we've talked about several times, which is this moment that um, companies, unicorns, which have flourished in the private markets, are wrestling sort of with what's next for them. And some of those companies have gone public, some to great fanfare, and others to less fanfare, as we've watched in the markets this week. Read Uber. Read Uber. However, WeWork is still a unicorn, and it's still private, and it's wrestling, you know, we, we know that they've filed confidentially for IPO stuff. Doesn't mean that they'll necessarily, necessarily try and go public. If they did try to go public, they'd probably be the second biggest IPO of the year, year after Uber. But between now and then, there's some interesting stuff that Ellen got to d- dig into. Well, great segue, because I want to bring in Ellen Hewitt. Uh, she is our startups reporter here at Bloomberg News. Ellen, congrats on the great story. And, you know, we were speaking earlier just trying to understand what type of company this is. It feels like a tech company when we talk about, you know, uh, how it compares to an Uber IPO. But then on the other hand, very much a real estate company as well. That's right. It's both. It It is a real estate company in that, well, its business is taking leases and buildings, renovating them, and then leasing them out in smaller parcels for shorter periods of time to um, a really wide variety of customers, anyone from startups to big enterprise companies who want to have maybe a five-year lease instead of the traditional 15. And at the same time, it really wants to be seen as a tech company. It has a huge, you know, it's been most recently valued at $47 billion. Everyone says the multiple for WeWork is that of a tech company, even though it's a real estate company. And many people say that it can't live up to that valuation. So it, it does have this identity, this multiple identity thing going on where it's this sort of Real estate, you know, it's really just sort of a, a, a different way to parcel up real estate, and yet it's trying to sell this this vibe, this sense of like 
work as this amazing thing that you are now excited about because of exactly how WeWork designs its offices, which involves, um, if you ask them, a lot of technology around how exactly to make people feel comfortable with each other and excited in the office and moving through each other in a way that creates collaboration. Um, and also, you know, nice plants, beautiful furniture, uh, beer on tap, the sorts of things that uh, millennials love. And, and CEO Adam Newman has really been the brainchild of all this. He, he founded the company, and, and to his credit, it's now become a global company, right? We're in dozens of countries, hundreds of locations around the world. Yeah, 36 countries at least, um, and they just keep adding more and more, um, and they're growing at a, a super fast rate. But the biggest challenge from a business model standpoint here is that he has yet to make any money. Right. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and so and there's a bit of news that you got. So why don't you explain that latest wrinkle? Yeah. So that you're totally right. They lost uh, they lost almost two billion dollars last year, um, and and they've just been known as a, a company that that burns a lot of cash uh, and has raised a lot of cash in order to fund that. They've raised more than $10 billion from SoftBank alone. And that's big money. You know, yeah. soft, SoftBank, if see, you know, they, they make big investments in people, and this is one of their biggest. Yeah, and, and when we talked to uh, Adam Newman, he was telling us that he, what he thinks is really holding him back from expanding even faster is both cash and space. And so they have this new plan that, in a way, gets them both. It's uh, it's an outside real estate investment fund or, or group of funds called ARK, A-R-K, for those who are curious. And it is a way to you raise capital from other people, from outside investors, including um, Ivanhoe Cambridge in Canada. And it has almost $3 billion already. And they're going to use it to buy stakes in buildings where WeWork uh, is going to basically either take a large tenancy or have – one of its enterprise customers take a large tendency. So for outside investors, this is the sort of bet where you could say, like, okay, if I believe that WeWork really increases the value of a building, which WeWork says it does, and I know that these are investments where they have a tenant in hand, maybe this is a place where I want to put my money. And then that allows WeWork to use this money to get access to buildings they wouldn't normally. Um, And because they own the management firm, they also will get to see some of the profits off of um, value appreciation from the buildings that are in this portfolio. But one little hiccup there is just that they're opposite the table of each other. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like yeah. we're, we're our own little wrinkle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of wrinkles in this story. A lot of big personalities. Some unbelievable uh, reporting. Ellen Hewitt, congrats again on the story. It's the cover this week of Bloomberg Business Week. We work wants to be its own landlord. It also wants $2.8 billion. That's the headline on the terminal today. One of the most read stories, not surprisingly. Check it out now, today, on the Bloomberg and on Bloomberg.com. Well, I think this next segment is going to make me hungry, at least. Jose Sill is with us. He is the CEO of Restaurant Brands International. They're brands that you know. Tim Hortons, Burger King, Popeyes among them. He's in New York City for Investor Day. So tell us about what you were saying to your investors today. What's the main message you wanted to get across? I had a chance to, uh, to share today with, uh, with investors uh, and, and analyst, uh, what, what it is we, th- we think about uh, RBI uh, as a company, uh, as a team. Uh, we shared our dream uh, for, for the, the business that we have, and we've shared uh, long-term uh, a goal to, to go from 26,000 restaurants, which we have today, to, uh, to, to 40,000 in the next 8 to 10 years. Um, we have three amazing, iconic brands, Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons, that, uh, that, that are present in many markets around the world and we think have huge runway for growth uh, for many years to come. And that was the, uh, 
the objective of, uh, of today's Investor Day. Well, and as you say, some iconic brands. One uh, place where a lot of brands are competing is breakfast. It feels like that's really heating up, especially through Burger King. What are you seeing there and what's your edge? Well, we have, we've had a, a really strong breakfast business at Burger King for some time. We, we have about 14% of our business in the U.S. Uh, coming through, uh, through our breakfast day part. And so the, the good news uh, for us is that we, we, we already have a foundation. Our franchise mm-hmm. partners are already uh, well-staffed and, and have good teams uh, delivering breakfast every day. But we think there's a huge opportunity for growth there. Our, our, our strongest and biggest competitor in, uh, in breakfast is doing something north of 30% uh, as, uh, as a, a portion of their business coming through breakfast. So we think we have a lot of room for growth. And, and there was two uh, main things that we focused on that we shared with investors today. Uh, on, on our breakfast platform, which is first, we need to be credible and, and really strong in coffee. We launched a new coffee offering uh, with the Burger King Cafe uh, in, at the end of March. Uh, we started that with our coffee subscription, which created a lot of um, attention and, and notoriety for, for, for BK Coffee. Uh, and then uh, we, we invested in, uh, in media behind that, and we've launched uh, new products, including iced coffee and frappes. So the, uh, having a credible, strong coffee platform is critical for, for breakfast. And then second, uh, our, our, we have a already really strong uh, products at breakfast. In, in fact, our number two selling product at Burger King outside of the Whopper is the croissant, which is which is a breakfast offering. Wow! Uh, but our guests are asking for more. Yeah, so our guests are asking for more variety uh, in in terms of breakfast offerings, new new bread carriers, uh, both uh, savory and sweet, uh, and having different options. And so uh, having flexibility and variety uh, on the on the breakfast entrees, in addition to having a great strong uh, platform of coffee and beverages, uh, coupled with good investment and uh, media investment behind uh, the, the platform, we think will give us room for growth in breakfast for uh, for years to come. All right, let's talk a little chicken. Uh, over at Popeyes, testing a chicken sandwich, I believe. This is a first. Do I have that right? That that you're going the sandwich route. What's behind that? Yeah, we we don't have a chicken sandwich today in uh, in Popeyes. Uh, it, Popeyes has a. It's a very strong business in the U.S., has very good, healthy unit economics. Um, the, the average volumes are, are quite strong, and the profitability for our franchise partners is quite good. Uh, but it's a relatively uh, straightforward, limited menu where we have uh, the bulk of our sales coming from bone-in chicken, which is kind of our signature product, and, uh, and then a growing part of the business is coming from, uh, from boneless chicken. And, uh, but we don't have a, a chicken sandwich, and what's exciting for us in the U.S., uh, with Popeyes is that uh, two of the fastest growing categories in chicken are boneless uh, kind of tenders and, and that side of the business uh, plus chicken sandwiches. So we think we have a lot of room for growth uh, with Popeyes in, in the U.S. Uh, by continuing to invest behind uh, really uh, high quality innovations on the, on the chicken tender side and then uh, doing it right with, uh, with a great-tasting chicken sandwich, um, only the way that Popeyes can do. So right. I think the combination of those two things will, will help us grow top line in, uh, in Popeyes for, for many years to come. All right, so let's go then from meat to vegan. Uh, the idea that, that you're embracing uh, sort of vegan products and specifically uh, Beyond Meat, testing that in Canada, uh, I believe an interesting move. Clearly, Beyond Meat, the hot shot IPO of the year. Uh, help us understand, we only get about, got about a minute to go, what you expect to see and how soon you expect to see uh, that really prove out. 
Yeah, we, we've been uh, studying uh, meatless options for both Burger King and Tim Hortons uh, over the last uh, probably 12 months or so, and, and we saw an opportunity at Tim's in Canada to, uh, to expand our breakfast offering, our all-day breakfast offering, with, uh, with a meatless option, uh, through a sausage meatless option, and, uh, and we're testing it now. We started the test this, uh, this morning uh, in Canada, and we think uh, this is going to be a, a really exciting platform for us to grow uh, traffic with existing customers as well as uh, with new guests that want to try uh, the, the variety of a, of a meatless option. So we're, we're really excited about that. It's just the beginning, uh, but we think um, you know, we'll, we'll get a bunch of learnings from, from the test uh, in the restaurants that we're in now, and we'll be able to, to make a, a decision on, on taking the product nationally by, by the end of the summer. Jose Sill is the chief executive officer of Restaurant Brands International, addressing his investors today in New York City. Thank you so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close as we get closer and closer. Taylor Riggs, about 12 minutes away, 11 minutes away from the close of trading here in the U.S. Michael Cugino, he is back with us. He is president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, overseeing about $2.3 billion out in San Francisco. But he's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. So, Michael, I guess my first question is couple days of an up market. Are we just taking a breather from all this trade madness? What's underlying the trade right now? Well, short term, you know, who knows? But I think the initial shock of the Sunday night tweet and its impact on trade has alleviated for the moment, you know, and, and markets have recovered. Keep in mind that in the U.S. at the moment, you know, you have generally very positive economic news, good corporate earnings, better than expected in Q1, although the, the, the comparisons were lowered. People are working, 50-year unemployment lows, right? People are spending money. Companies are spending money. The Fed's on the sidelines and inflation's in check. These are not conditions that recessions generally start in, okay? The yield curve is flat in the short end and, and still slow properly up to 30 years. So ask me in three to six months or a year where we're going because things can change quickly. But at the moment, I think that probably describes it. Well, there's a few things that you mentioned that – perked up my ears, one of which was talking about fundamentals and earnings. We had some earnings this morning, of course, from the likes of Macy's, et cetera. But when you talked about the fundamentals being strong, first, there were some calls for an earnings recession. So let me just put it bluntly. First quarter earnings actually did see some positive growth year over year. Second quarter, it looks like we could see some negative growth, but you really do need two quarters of consecutive negative growth to call for an earnings recession. It looks like we might not get that despite what all the bears were saying. Yeah, Taylor, I, I mean, that's true. There's nothing that says we have to have an earnings recession. Um, you know, we're going on probably year three of the earnings recovery from the last time we had, I think it was three or four quarters worth of an earnings recession. But, you know, business conditions being good, I think we have weathered whatever trade disputes we're having, not only with China, but the unratified new NAFTA and the issues with with or without Brexit Europe. 
Um, we're, we're weathering this better than the rest of the world. Global growth, growth is anemic. Uh, China's having some difficulty. So, I mean, there are reasons why we're growing and why corporate earnings are growing. And even in a zero growth environment, the fact that companies now can keep 40% more of their income because the tax rate, you know, the nominal tax rate declined from 35% to 21, that means more money to spend on employees, business development, business uh, dividends, share buybacks, CapEx, et cetera, where depreciation rules have been liberalized. So, There's a lot of reasons why, again, we may not get that earnings recession that some people have speculated about. So something that's certainly top of mind for folks in your adopted hometown of San Francisco is the IPO market. Uh, One of your local companies, uh, Uber, having a bit of a time of it, uh, to say the least. Lyft as well. We have a a story uh, about WeWork. Uh, it's the cover story in Bloomberg Business Week. They may be going public one way or another. Slack uh, coming out through a direct listing. What do you make of how negative the market has been on some of those names? And then you look on the other side, Beyond Meat, crushing it. So what do we make of this IPO market? Absolutely. You know, I'm not sure. On, on a macro basis, the IPO calendar reminds me a lot of 1999. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody trying to get out quick. Um, if, if you think that we're late cycle and the economy might be changing or going into a slowdown or recession, there's a lot of people, a lot of rounds of capital that have been invested in a lot of these companies in the private markets that may be looking for a liquidity event. Um, or they might be having to wait a while for the next time they can go out. So there might be some of that to it. Um, but every company is different, right? I mean, Uber, for example, um, you know, they're losing a ton of money. Um, it's a great business model. I guess they're disruptive. I, I would agree that, with that. But until they can show a, a path to profitability, I think there are going to be some investors, especially in the public markets, they're going to have, have difficulty with, you know, the valuation. Um, and where they went out, you know, it was strategically, in a sense, above the latest rounds of private financing, right. but the lower end of the public expected range. Um, and since then, they've dipped below, I believe, one or two of the, the recent private rounds. Not only that, but a lot of people in the private markets nowadays, bigger mutual funds, can can buy these things in the private markets without having to wait for them to go public. So the, the market for it maybe wasn't as strong as it could have been in past years. So there's a lot of reasons. I think with that company, you got to have a path to profitability, probably similar similar with Lyft as well. Um, WeWork is also bleeding a lot of cash. Uh, Pinterest, I'm not quite sure. Their value, they've done well in the public market, although I'm not sure the profitability on that one either, really. Um, and so it's company specific, and one by one you look at them, and from my perspective, you determine if they're of interest either now or in the future. So one of the stocks that you own is Chevron, which really caught my eye because, as we know, they pulled out of that merger for Anandarko and got a pretty good windfall from that breakup fee. Yes. Of course, Chevron was added to the conviction buy list this morning at Goldman Sachs. When you talk about sort of long-term diversification and long-term growth opportunities, what is it about Chevron that you like? Well, my own view is that we're probably in the we've been bouncing around the bottom of a commodity cycle, you know, low period of that cycle for a while now. Global growth has been anemic. The dollar has been strong. I think that has impacted things. If those aspects change around, then I think energy looks great for the long term because the supply overhang is not that great. That's the macro. The, The Chevron specifically great company diversified. 
um, resources all over the world, smart managers of capital. Um, and, you know, who knows whether they made the right decision on Anadarko or not. But I respect the fact that they had their own internal bogeys and decided not to chase. So that, to me, indicates the prudent management we've seen with them over the years. And, uh, and so, you know, we like that area in the long term. If you're patient, they pay a good, healthy dividend. And we like energy in the long term as well. So. 30 seconds to go. Talk to me about Costco. We have an interesting conversation uh, coming up this weekend with someone who's trying to out Costco Costco from an online uh, perspective, a, a company called Boxed. Why do you like uh, the warehouse space? Well, retail, generally speaking, is in a real disruptive phase right now. Um, but having said that, so who knows? But with Costco, we love the business. We love the management. It's a low-margin business. They run it fantastically well. Same-store sales continue to increase. They pay a good dividend. And you know, in the retail space, it's a great holding for us. Michael Cagino, he is the president and portfolio manager of the Permanent Portfolio Family of Funds, overseeing about $2.3 billion out in San Francisco. Really happy to have him here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.